0: There was an excellent Christian philosopher named Francis Schaeffer who once wrote a tremendous book entitled, He is There and He is Not Silent. In the pages of this work, Schaeffer contends quite well for the necessity of a God based on a few different philosophical realities. If you have not read this, I would highly encourage you to do so because at the end of it, you will surely conclude that, yes, there is a God, He is there, and He is not silent. However, as I've studied through the text before us this morning, it has been made very clear to me that Francis Schaefer was not the first to make this observation. No, on the contrary, David, the author of Psalm 19, where we're going to be this morning, has, under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit, set forth, forth the most profound and convincing argument that the God of the Bible is there and he is in fact not silent. More than this, David draws out for us the implications of a God who exists and refuses to remain silent. David accomplishes this by three very distinct and three very uh, increasingly personal movements throughout Psalm 19. He first speaks of the glory of God set on display in the created order, then David makes much of the reality that the magnificent grace of God has been made available in his written word. And he concludes with asking God, in light of what David sees in the scriptures, to make him less sinful and more like what he sees in them, in order that God would be pleased with what he sees in David. So, So, The scope of our text this morning can be understood this way. The glory of God is revealed in His work of creation, but the grace of God is realized only in His written word. And it is there believers must go if they are to live a life that is acceptable to their glorious Creator. These being the author's main points, they will serve as our guide this morning as well. Those three big ideas in mind... Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This is the word of the Lord. David begins by saying that the creation we see all around us is doing something. It is engaged in a a very specific activity. He says, the heavens declare the glory of God. And by saying this, he he is referring to, he's he's not referring to that place where, where angels dwell and every moment of every day continue to, Praise and exalt their Creator. No, here in verse 1, the terms heaven and sky are synonymous. They they, they mean the same thing. David David is referring to that great canopy draped over the earth that we can turn our heads upward and behold each day. He, He says that it, along with the rest of creation, is saying something. In fact, that's what he labors to drive home for the first six verses of this psalm. You can hear it with his use of verbs like declare and proclaim in verse 1. Verse 2 tells us there is a pouring out of speech and a revealing of knowledge. Continuing on to verse 3, we find that the creation is given words and a voice. The author's point is abundantly clear that the created order is not silent. It is communicating something. Now, as magnificent as that Idea may be to us that all creation is not a silent, purposeless body of matter, this would not mean much to us if we did not know the content of its message. Thankfully, though, that's not the case. David says that the message all creation is is trying to get across is clear. It's declaring, it is speaking of God's glory. The the splendor of its creator, his his worth, his majesty, his greatness. And and this glory is immeasurable. It's it's without limit. So all creation repeatedly speaks about it, going on and on and on. And the, the worshiper of God understands that this is actually not creation coming alive in and of itself and taking up a voice, but this is the Lord God Using his created order as a mouthpiece to communicate his magnificence to all on the earth. He is making his existence and his glory abundantly clear. He is not silent. Now, at this point, the atheist hearing my voice would contend wait, 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 wait a minute. You're telling me that you believe that. All the inanimate clusters of atoms you call creation is speaking? And you mean to tell me not only that, but you believe there's some intelligent designer behind it all who's actually doing the communicating through what he's made? To which I would respond with a hearty, yes, yes. In his grace, the Lord God has revealed himself to all mankind through what is in the world. It's what we call general revelation. And they would likely respond, foolishness. The the universe is not involved in some unified task to communicate anything. It's simply a collection of material that all resulted from random causes. It's not going in any predetermined direction or involved in some unified task. It's, It's merely the product of a chaotic cosmos responding to things based on chemical composition. But David says no. No, if you're the least bit observant from a non-biased perspective, then it is undeniable when you look up at the painted sky and you see on a clear morning this this magnificent artwork that God has displayed. You're, You're stopped in your tracks by its sheer beauty and bounty and you take it in for a moment. Then you go about your day and wake up the next morning to find a whole new scene there waiting on you with different colors and shades and cloud formation. No, if you are the least bit observant from a non-biased perspective, it becomes totally clear that the sky has not done this to itself. No, it is proclaiming the handiwork of a great, of a divine artist. David would also consider, uh, have us consider the passing of one day to the next. He says, day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. This literally means that when one day ends and another comes about, the first day talks to the next, and one night shares its knowledge with the next. And of course, what those days and nights are proclaiming is nothing other than that glory spoken of in verse 1. It is the all-consuming message of all creation. So one day speaks to the next, saying, He's done it again! Oh, how glorious this God is that He's brought about yet another day! You see, it's no coincidence that one day dawns after another. Even believers often think about the passing of days in far too a trivial kind of way. So easily do we forget Colossians 1, verse 17, where we are told that it is in Christ that all things hold together. It's nothing short of a glorious reality that Jesus Christ is intentionally holding all of the universe together. And without this intentional activity of Christ, if He he looked away but for a nanosecond, everything would come apart at the seams. The atheist cries out, all is Random. But you just consider the passing of one day to the next. Darkness following the light and this reoccurring cycle happening 365 times each year for thousands and thousands of years without fail. Random? No. No, I don't know anything random that follows that kind of order or or happens with that amount of dependability. No, David says that this is an awe-inspiring feat. And that if you you look at creation from a non-biased perspective, you'll see that it's pouring forth praise through its power and dependability to a powerful, dependable creator who brings order to his universe. David then makes plain to the reader just how far this communication of God through his work of creation extends Who all can understand the message nature is proclaiming? But the answer from verse 3 is that the message is universal. In fact, no one can escape the voice of creation. There is no one and nowhere who has not heard it. The voice of the heavens goes out, verse 4, through all the earth, to the end of the world. It's in these heavens that God has set His greatest of all the starry hosts, the sun. And The sun is personified here not as having a voice, but nonetheless communicating the glory of God because it faithfully comes out each day like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, joyfully executing the work that its creator designed it to do. We, along with the ancient world, marvel at the power and the significance of the sun. We benefit from its its light and its heat in numerous ways. But as grand as it is, it is truly just another piece of creation that has been assigned a specific task within a specific context on a very defined circuit. And as it rises from the end of the heavens and and runs its defined circuit to the other end of them, day by day, it too is letting the inhabitants of of the earth know that someone has created it. Someone has assigned it a task, and someone keeps it on its proper course. And because that someone is superior to it, it will delightfully and faithfully perform its duty. And just in case there remain any doubt about the universality of the revelation that God has given all humanity about himself, David adds, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. So as to say, if anyone resides in any place that does not benefit from the warmth of the sun, they could escape its message. They could claim not to hear of the awe-inspiring God that formed it. However, we know that this is impossible. Therefore, all people have been confronted with the existence and the glorious nature of their Creator. Because the Creator is there, and He, through His creation, has spoken to His creatures, revealing His glory. And we could go on at length about this inconceivable reality of a, a holy God who would choose to make Himself known to His lowly creatures, but for time's sake, we will simply acknowledge that He has indeed spoken to all, revealing Himself. And the glory of His eternal existence. We must move on, because as wonderful as that is, David shares with us a far more thrilling reality. He says in the first part of this psalm that the glory of God is revealed in His work of creation. But in the second part, David shows that His grace, the grace of God, is realized only in His written word. Now, I would call you at this point to give great attention to the words of this psalm that follow. Because as our brother Rodrigo stated so well last week, we see God's glory in creation, but we have no access to it there. It is only the grace made available to you in His written word that allows you to access His glory. The stark shift between verses 6 and 7 is as though David is saying, yes, to all creation, God has spoken and given a general message, but to you, To you, his particular people, he has given a most particular word. Because not just for his glory, but for the sake of his children, he is a God who, in his grace, refuses to remain silent. Let us now see how David, in his six different references to the written word of God, describes the six ways in which God's grace is made available to us in it. First, he brings out the reality that those born of God are given all they need in God's written word. In verse 7, David writes, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Now, when he refers to the law of the Lord, he's using a comprehensive term for all of God's revealed will. So David is speaking about all the parts of the Old Testament that had been written up until this point. He says that they are perfect. And he does not mean that the written word of God is is just that it's uh, free from any moral defect or or blemish, although that is is intended, that is implied. Actually, what David is getting at here, the the primary intent of what he's saying is that the law of the Lord is complete or, or whole. The law of the Lord is lacking in nothing. And because of this, David says that it revives the soul, which is literally to turn the soul back to its original intent. So what is the word of God good for? Well, here we see both that it gives life to those dead in sin, bringing them to embrace that which they were originally created to do, which is worship and honor the Lord God. And when the believer strays in sins, the word turns them around. We're given the same idea from 2 Peter 1, verses 3 and 4. Peter says, "...His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises so that through them you might become partakers of the divine nature." This is incredible. Both both David and Peter are saying that in the written Word of God, the child of God has all that they need to come to faith and to live all their remaining days the life that God intends and desires for them to live. All that they need. Let that sink in for a moment. This is why why we sing and read that great hymn How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in His excellent Word. What more can He say than to you He has said, to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled? The answer is nothing. Nothing more can He say. In His grace, He has fully equipped those who are regenerated by His Spirit to live a life that He intends them to live by following His written Word. In his next description of the Word of God, David calls it the testimony of the Lord, saying that it is sure. And because of this, it makes wise the simple. And what's intended here by calling the written Word the testimony of the Lord is to call attention to the fact that the Scriptures are God's witness about Himself. They are from Him and not any man. And because of this, we know that they are sure. They are verified. What we read here is trustworthy because it proceeds from a trustworthy God. But, but what measure of grace is made available to the child of God in them because of this? Well, David informs us that they make wise the simple. Now we know that when the Bible refers to the wise, it is speaking of those who... Have, who, who um, not those who have a superior intellect, but but rather it refers to that quality of the believer that enables them to make right judgments about things in their pursuit of a godly life. David says that this, the ability to make these right judgments, comes from reading and believing what the Lord has said about Himself. It's in His Word that we behold God Himself. And, And in beholding God By His grace, we're enabled to live lives that make much of Him. David continues to extol the written word. In in verse 8, referencing the precepts of the Lord. That is the, the precise direction God has given for our personal conduct. He says that they are right, and they cause the heart to rejoice. Now, part of this description of the precepts of the Lord, most would consent to. Certainly all Christians, and and even some of those who have not been made alive by the Spirit of God, would say that they believe the instructions God has given about how to live are morally right. But, oh, David, to to say that submission to the Word causes the heart to rejoice? Well, that's something else entirely. The natural person asks, what is enjoyable about denying myself? Or, or any other of the commands of Christ? What, what's enjoyable about these things that would cause my heart to rejoice? Those things are, are good, no doubt, and, and they may be moral, but oh, how they cause discomfort, not gladness. Oh, how burdensome they are. But the true worshiper of God knows the grace and kindness of God set on display in this verse they have found the secret of life to enjoy the infinite pleasures that there are in obeying their master and king. They can say, along with the Apostle John, for this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. Rather, in obeying them, the worshiper of God finds great joy. How how kind the Lord has been in revealing to His children the secret of a joyful life here. David then says, the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Simply meaning that the authoritative instruction God has given in His Word is free from any imperfection. Thus, it is able to give you counsel and enlighten your eyes. In other words, it can give you all the spiritual insight that you need. He's already told us in verse 1 that the law of the Lord is perfect, meaning it has in it all that we need, but now he specifies. Just in case you missed the implications of the law of the Lord being perfect, now he says that if you need spiritual insight, look no further. Look nowhere else. It is only here that you will find it. This is why David is so repetitious here in his lifting up, ...of the written Word. He wants to make known the exclusivity of the Word of God... ...as a means of grace towards His children... ...making Himself and His will known. His Word is good. And it is sufficient for your spiritual walk. How kind and gracious is the Father... ...in not just expecting holiness and purity from His children but making known to them what it is and what it looks like in His Word so plainly. Proceeding on to verse 9, David uses a, a very interesting label for the Word of God when he refers to it as the fear of the Lord. The, the sense here is that reverent awe that comes from receiving the Word of God. The only re- proper response to an eternal God that would see fit to speak into human history to his people is reverence and fear. This is one of the reasons why I love our church so much, because from the first interaction that my wife and I had with Midtown, it was clear that this was a people who held high the word of God that he has given to his people and responded seriously to it how great a response this word demands from us in light of how David says that it's clean. It's unmixed from any corruption of sin that taints this world. And what what great confidence this provides as we walk through this world of people charged to live lives of obedience, looking to an eternal dwelling place and not an earthly one. You see, if this word were mixed with any of that which corrupts this sin-tainted earth, we would have no confidence that it would endure. But since it is not, it will not pass away with this world. Since it is clean, it will endure forever. Jesus says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So you can give yourself to it, brothers and sisters, knowing that the Word of God The word of the Lord will remain. We have a word that's not even limited by what we call human history, but will stand even into eternity future, brothers and sisters. Finally, David says that the rules or the judgments of the Lord are true, they have a a faithfulness and dependability about them. He affirms that they are righteous altogether meaning that every one of them, all alike, is righteous. And that may sound like an oversimplified reality for David to waste a line of Scripture on, but, but if you think for a moment, what a tremendous comfort for the child of God to, to be able to look at the Scriptures so plainly written out and know beyond a shadow of a doubt that, that the decrees that God has given are right. Right? Not in any abstract or relative sense. No, this is what is right for me today. We don't wrestle along with the rest of our postmodern age to find what is true and right day to day. No, we know precisely where to look to find precisely what is right for us in this moment. In light of all this, David says that. The written word of God is to be desired more than gold. Even much fine gold. Not just that, but sweeter than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. So valuable are the words coming from the mouth of our God that you should desire them more than all your wealth or all the wealth you could ever amass. More satisfying are His words than the most delectable food you might ever dream of placing on your lips. Let those born of God fight with everything in them to believe this and to say, along with Job, I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my portion of food. We need this kind of view because it's the Word and it alone that guards us and guides us Verse 11 says that by them is your servant warned. And what is the servant of God warned against but the sin and wickedness that would pull him out of fellowship and communion with his God? So to help guard against those temptations and sin which so easily entangle us, God in His grace has given us what? His Word. And when the instructions and commandments of God are kept, by the child of God. David says at the end of the verse that it proves to not only guard, but guide them into unimaginable rewards. However, when the servant of the Lord does fail and chooses not to allow God's words with all of their benefits to guard and guide them, the word of the Lord does not stand to serve no purpose for them. This is what David begins to cry out to the Lord about. Knowing that he will fail in keeping God's law perfectly, he acknowledges how unfit men and women are to recognize their own rebellion against God. Saying, who can discern his errors? And it's only in light of the nature and benefits of the word he's just finished elevating that he says, declare me innocent from hidden faults. You see, The word of God stands as a mirror that's held up so that the sinner can be exposed to their error. The child of God looks into it and then repents of the sin that he or she, in their ignorance, wasn't even aware that they were committing against God. It's also this word that as David's already described in verse 11, guards us and keeps us back from those presumptuous sins that we know we're so prone to and and those sins that seek to have dominion over us. The Lord tells us here that knowing and believing His words are our only hope. It's our only hope to be blameless and innocent of such great transgressions that would seek to have dominion over us concluding with verse 14. This is where David brings the psalm full circle. Here he says his desire is to, like all nature does day to day, live for the glory of God. Just as we see the sun come out at the break of each day from His chamber and runs its course with joy as the Lord has prescribed and purposed it to do, so also we are to embrace our purpose as God's creation to live a life that glorifies Him. In fact, David goes so far as to say that this kind of life that that speaks and thinks in alignment with God's Word would be acceptable to the Lord. But don't miss just how spectacular that declaration of David is this morning. That we could live lives acceptable to God? Remember at this point, the Bible makes abundantly clear that we, in and of ourselves, cannot possibly live a life that's acceptable to God. R- Romans 8, verse 8 says, Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So how could we believe such a claim? That God would look on a sinful, rebellious people and deem what He sees acceptable. Of course, it's it's not simply from obedience to His Word, for we know that in the flesh, we're unable to keep His law perfectly. And one trace of failure to do so, one trace of it brings on us separation from Him and the declaration that we are unclean. The exact opposite of acceptable to a holy God. However, praise God. That in His grace, He has sent the incarnate Word, Jesus Christ, to atone for our sins and reconcile those who would believe on Him to God. And and as you exercise faith in the incarnate Word, if it is sincere faith, it will always be followed by a love for His written Word. Then it's there that we can see His words and His thoughts so that we can take them on as our words in the meditation of our hearts. This surely and certainly is what's pleasing and acceptable to the Lord our God, that we would reflect the Son of God that we see in His Word. Praise Him that He has refused to remain silent, and in doing so has by His grace made a way that His children could be Acceptable to Him. Pray with me. Father, thank You for the truths here, God. Lord, we could spend time dwelling on each one of these these realities for the rest of this day, and it would not be enough, Lord. The benefits are too great for us to even really fully comprehend. But Father, I pray that we would be encouraged and challenged, Lord, to dive into Your Word, to live a life that is acceptable to You as Your children. And Lord God, I pray that in this moment, if if there are those here that You desire to be Your children and have not yet placed faith in Christ, that they would do that, that, that they would come to faith and be deemed acceptable in Your sight. Amen.